Good morning. Well, nice full house here this morning. It's going to be interesting next week as we go to two services, uh, but the exciting thing, the thing that I'm most excited about is there is room for more. There will be room for more, so I hope, and it's really kind of interesting that we are where we are uh, in our study of the book of John this morning because I think this message will prepare our hearts, not only for next week, but for uh, the weeks to follow in how God wants to use us um, to, um, to witness and to share and to invite people um, to meet Jesus. And so really excited about that. Um, obviously, uh, we are now uh, a couple of weeks away, a couple of weeks away from what you ask. What are we a couple of weeks away from? The Super Bowl. The Super Bowl, yeah. It probably wasn't what you were expecting, right? Yeah. Well, um, you know what that means, though, right? It's commercial time. It's commercial time. Now, I just, this is a brief, unscientific survey. How many of you will be watching the Super Bowl? Okay. All right. Now, keep your hands up, all right? Put your hands down if you're watching the Super Bowl to see the game. Okay, all right. So there are several of you that are watching the Super Bowl merely to watch the commercials. Um, they're, uh, they're fascinating. Sometimes, though, you watch them and you go, why did I waste my time doing that? This is where a DVR comes in. You can kind of fast forward through stuff. But, uh, you know, we know some of the commercials will be duds. Uh, some of them uh, will be funny as all get out. Others will tug on your heartstrings, right? Um, and, uh, but we know the purpose of the commercials, right? They're to get you to buy something. They want you to, to buy something, and companies will spare no expense um, to get you to buy their product or their uh, service, whatever it is. And one of the ways they do that is by... Um, uh, hiring celebrities um, to uh, be featured in their ads. I mean, it's hard to watch a, a commercial and, and not see a celebrity of some type, you know, in it. So I thought maybe we'll have a little fun, a little game here this morning. I'm going to mention a few names. I want you to tell me the commercial, if, if you can, all right? First one's going to be a little, the first couple of be might be tough. Serena Williams. Anybody? What was that? Direct TV, yes. Remember one of them, she plays Wonder Woman. The most recent one, I think, is The Matrix, right? You know? All right, how about this one? You may not recognize the name. Dean Winters. What's that? Nice name. Nice, yeah, Dean, nice name. Um, maybe you know him better as Mayhem. Yes, all state, okay? What about Kevin Miles, Aaron Rodgers, and Patrick Mahomes? State Farm, yeah. Uh, Jennifer Garner, Samuel L. Jackson, and John Travolta. Capital One. Yeah, you can see. Now you know why they pick these people to, to do that. Now, this one took me a while. Um, she looked familiar. I wasn't sure who she was. Kristen Stewart for Chanel. Okay. Her, 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 her co-partner in crime was Robert Pattison for Dior. 
Which, by the way, I hate that commercial. If you've seen that commercial, Robert Pat, you get, well, who are they? Twilight, anybody? Okay. Um, so, um, and Robert Pattinson uh, is the new Batman. And so when you know that he's playing the new Batman and you see him in Dior trying to look all cool, hot, and sexy and everything, it just, I cringe. And, and so, but, you know, I mean, we, I could list a whole bunch of names. And then this one here, it's almost kind of hard for me to mention, but as much as I like Tom Selleck, I can't imagine him ever having a reverse mortgage. <laughs> right? You know, with all the money that, that he has. So, um, but the truth is, you know, co- corporations, and, you know, businesses, companies spend millions of dollars Um, with advertising expenses each year to get us to buy their product or their services Um, by getting, you know, so the airtime is expensive enough, but when you hire a well-known celebrity, you're paying out big bucks uh, for them to endorse your product or at least to lend their name to your product or service. And, And you have to wonder, well, why do they do it? Well, obviously it works. Otherwise, they wouldn't be spending that kind of money. They understand that if they can get a well-known individual who is liked and, and here's the key word, perceived to be trustworthy, they can sell you just about anything. See, I mean, if they put somebody up there that you know is a liar and a cheat and everything else, their their testimony doesn't mean anything. You're not going to go buy their product. You'll buy the competition's product. So whose endorsement matters more. What, what, which carries more weight? People you don't know who are being paid to sell you something you don't need or the testimony of someone you know and trust who has nothing to gain from telling you their story. <clears throat> Obviously, it's the latter. And that kind of testimony is effective. It's persuasive. And in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, um, what we see is the power of personal testimony. And the individuals in our text are, are, are interesting because they are known to the people to whom they testify. They um, uh, are not only known, they're credible. And there's no monetary reward There's no compensation. There's no benefit. They simply want others to meet Jesus and to follow him. So this morning, if there's anything to hang your hat on, it's it's simply this, that those who follow Jesus cannot help but invite others to follow him too. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that, um, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher and guide here this morning, uh, that you would help us to see and to understand uh, that which we read, Um, but more importantly, Lord, that we would take that truth to heart, that we would apply it to our lives, and uh, Lord, uh, that there would be many more lovers of Jesus in your kingdom as a result. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. John the Baptist had already testified as to who Jesus was. I'm sure you remember that. 
But he does so again here in verse 36. So if you have your Bibles, um, we're going to start reading in verse 35. And uh, hopefully here my uh, clicker will be working. But 1 John 1 verse 35 It says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, these verses represent a changing of the guard, if you will. Um, We've already noticed that, that John is extremely humble. He knows who he is. He knows his role in life. He knows that he is a voice. His purpose was to prepare the way of the Lord, to point people to Jesus. But it's one thing to point people to Jesus and say, there he is, and hopefully other people will go to him. It's another thing to have people whom you have invested your life in to leave you to follow somebody else. And that's exactly what happens here. And I'm, I'm sure at some level, um, it was hard for John to let these men go. I, I, I'm sure that this didn't come easy. I, In one sense. In one sense it did. In another sense, I'm sure it was difficult. But the time had come for them to move on. And John didn't just point them to Jesus. He released them. Encouraged them, really, to follow Jesus. Now, at first glance, you know, it it doesn't seem like that's that big of a deal. But I, I think that it is. In, in testifying to who Jesus was, in pointing his disciples to Jesus, in, in releasing them to follow him, he's really relinquishing his influence and authority over their lives. It's kind of really what a parent does when their kids grow up and they leave home to make a life for themselves. On one hand, we're happy for them. You know, on another hand, it's a little sad. Because we remember the good times that we had. It can be hard for leaders to do this. And, and it's been hard for me over the years. You know, when you spend a lot of time investing in people, pouring your life into people, I mean, they're not just pupils. They're not just students. They become your friends, your coworkers. They become family. And, and sometimes it's, it's hard Change is hard. It's, it's, it's never easy. But for the sake of their spiritual growth, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the mission of God, we have to be willing to allow people to take that next step to, to grow and learn from others and to go beyond where we can lead them. It would be foolish, for instance, for me to think that I am the repository of all truth that I have all knowledge, that I am equally gifted in all these different areas. You know, no. 
God may put me into somebody's life for a time for a specific reason, but there's always going to be somebody who's going to be more knowledgeable, more gifted, more talented, more inspirational, more whatever, for that person at another juncture in time. Now, it's interesting here as I I look at this passage (laughs) that... um, you know, Jesus, you know, uh, turns to them and, and sees that, that they're following here. Um, but, l- but let me back up just for a minute, though, because I think this is an important point to make. I think many, many leaders um, can become territorial. Churches can become territorial. Um, you know, we talk about wanting to bring people in, to add people. But we don't talk a whole heck of a lot about releasing people and sending people. See, because when, when you add people, you get more workers, you get more warm bodies, you know, your, your giving goes up, and there's a lot of things you can do. When you lose people, when people leave, you can lose those workers, you can lose um, the, the income that you need, and, and we become hoarders in a sense, and we become more about trying to keep people than we are trying to release people. And I think we can feel that even in smaller settings. If you're a teacher, if you're a mentor, uh, if you're a small group leader, if you're a leader really of of any kind, you you know what I'm talking about. We're constantly investing in people so that they will learn, so they will grow, and so they will go. And I think that's why I love John B. so much. Um, by the way, I think that's what I'm going to call John the Baptist for now on because it's a lot easier to say John B. than to say John the Baptist and John the Apostle and try to distinguish between them. But I love John B. And, and, and the reason why is I know he loved these guys. I know he valued their friendship. But he was willing to let them go so that they could learn from Jesus and fulfill their calling. Now, I think a lot of leaders feel like they need to hold on to people to validate themselves and their ministry. John didn't have that problem. He gladly released his disciples to follow Jesus, and I think we need to be willing to do the same. And if leaders do their job well, I think we ought to expect people to learn, to grow, and to go. I really do. And here at New Life, I I can tell you, we want you to use your gifts in service to the church, and not just this church. We want you to become disciple makers and kingdom builders. And guess whose kingdom we're talking about? It's God's kingdom. It's not our kingdom. God only has one church. We want some of you to become teachers, missionaries, evangelists, pastors, leaders. And if we want to be a blessing to other churches around us or new churches that are springing up, then we are going to have to be willing to part with resources and maybe even with some of you to make that a reality. We're not building our kingdom. And God help us if we ever get to a place where we're more concerned about keeping people than sending people. So look at verse 38 with me. (coughs) Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come 
and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, notice Jesus doesn't ask, um, you know, who are you seeking? He says, what are you seeking? In other words, he's asking, why are you following me? What is it that you're after? What are you expecting to hear and see? Jesus was really pressing them to think about why they were following him. Why did you leave John to follow me? Do you, do you know who I am? Do you know why I'm here? That's a great question. It's a great question. And, and, and people follow Jesus for all sorts of reasons, don't they? I mean, if you look through the Gospels, you find that many times people follow Jesus merely to get their belly full. You know, Jesus, you know, he's, he's the guy that can turn, you know, the loaves and the fish and, you know, feed a multitude, you know, with it. Yeah, let's go find Jesus. We'll get another meal. Or maybe you need a healing. Or maybe a, a demon cast out or whatever. There are all sorts of, and, and they're not all bad reasons, but we, we have to ask ourselves, why are we following Jesus? What are we expecting to get from him? So these men responded with a question of their own. Rabbi, where are you staying? Now, the word rabbi is a term of honor. And it was used uh, for, for several individuals, but, but largely for those teachers of the law. And it means my master or my great one. So here are these two disciples that just left John. They're following Jesus, and they're referring to Jesus as my teacher, my master. And so they reveal to us their desire to learn from Jesus. And the verb uh, translated staying is one of the most important verbs in John's gospel. Elsewhere, it's translated as abide or remain. And I'm sure you can think of a whole bunch of verses that come to your mind where that word appears, abide or remain. It's used twice right here in verse 39. And then it's used 39 times in John's gospel. Now, we might not quite get the full import of this question here in, uh, in the West, and particularly here in America, but where are you staying is kind of like asking, where are you from? Or where do you live? See, here in, in the States and in the West, we are more preoccupied with people's resumes. We're, we're, we're preoccupied with their accomplishments, not so much where they're from, not so in the East, then, or even today. Today, you could go to a country in the Middle East, for instance, and if you were to have a conversation with them, you're not going to hear, um, so what do you do? Or where do you work? So much as you will hear questions like, where were you born? Where are you from? Who's your father? And you say, well, why is that? It's because in the East, your identity is tied to your family. It's tied to your place of origin, where you are from. And so this question was really a probing question, I think, on behalf of the disciples to find out more about Jesus. They wanted to know, where, where, where are you from? 
They may have heard things, but they want to know, where are you from? So that they can kind of paint this picture in their head of who Jesus is. And I think this helps us understand Nathaniel's response later in verse 46. And we'll come to that in just a bit. And it's interesting to see that Jesus doesn't give them an address. He doesn't tell them where he's staying. He simply answers, come and you will see. I just love that about Jesus. It's like he knows what they're after, what they're getting at, and he doesn't play that game. He's not going to allow himself to be judged by worldly standards. It's as if he's saying, if you really want to know who I am and where I'm from, you need to come and see. And I think Jesus says the same thing to many of us, especially if you don't yet know Christ. You need to come and see. And to come and see means you have to be willing to make an investment, an investment of your time, an investment of your energy, and sometimes of your resources. Now, no doubt, they learned an awful lot about Jesus on the way. Uh, But when they saw where he was staying, they stayed with him the rest of the day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, depending on whether or not you go by Roman time, if John was using Roman time or Hebrew time, it would have been either 10 a.m. or 4 p.m. in the afternoon. But just imagine the things that they would have learned in that short period of time as they remained with Jesus. Throughout his gospel, John emphasizes the need for us to abide with Jesus, to remain with him. And John wants his readers, that includes us, to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to remain with Jesus. Let's look at verse 40. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. So Andrew was one of John's disciples, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter. So we know that Andrew now was one of John's disciples. Many commentators believe that the other disciple is actually the author of this book, John. And in a short time, they became convinced that Jesus was the Christ. And so they went and found their brothers. Andrew here finds Simon. Later, John goes and finds James. And and, and he tells them, we have found the Messiah. And it's not, like it, it, you know, it's not like they just stumbled over this. I mean, Andrew was a disciple of John. There was an expectation. He was looking for the coming of the Messiah. And now he says, we found him. And I think here we begin to see that those who follow Jesus will want others to follow him too. That's why he goes and finds his brother. So Simon is intrigued. So he goes with Andrew to meet with Jesus. And the first thing Jesus does is he changes his name. Now, I'm not sure how I would feel about that. You know, 
after 30 years or so of life of being called, you know, a Paul, I'm not sure I would be too thrilled if somebody came around and said, hey, your name's going to be John, or your name's going to be Peter, or, or something else. But I think what's intriguing here is, is that nowhere do you see Peter object, which is interesting. I, th- I think that's, that's very telling here. So, by the way, um, Cephas is Aramaic for rock. Peter comes from Petros, which is Greek, for rock. So Jesus has given him a name that we have come to know is, is Peter, the rock. And, and so, um, um, I, you know, I think there's significance in that. I, th- I think Jesus is looking at Peter, and he sees and he knows what Peter will become. Now, we know that, you know, there's a, Peter's got a lot of work ahead of him, right? <laughs> you know, but isn't it, isn't it encouraging, though, that God sees in us what we can't see in ourselves? And, and he, he believes in us more than we believe in ourselves, and I, and I think he, he understands that, hey, as long as he's at work in our lives, he will accomplish what concerns us. And I take great encouragement from that. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus found Philip. But you got to stop for a second and, and think about what does that mean? Jesus didn't find Philip like he found a coin on the sidewalk or a shell on the beach. Jesus was intentional. Jesus intentionally sought out Philip and commanded him because follow me is an imperative in the Greek. It's a command. He says, follow me. And he did. Now, every time I see that in in the scriptures, when Jesus said, follow me, boom, and they did, I'm thinking, what in the world is going on here? What, what, what would cause somebody to leave everything behind and follow Jesus like that? And yes, I think there was something about Jesus, I think, in looking at him and stuff. He, just, he would have gravitas, right? But I think this speaks more to the effectual call of God. That when he calls you, when he says, rise up from the dead, you rise up. And he called Philip, And Philip followed him. And somehow he became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And just like Andrew, he couldn't keep the good news to himself. So he goes and finds Nathanael. And he tells him, we found him. We we found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Now notice Philip uses the word we. I think Philip sees himself or at least is beginning to see himself as a part of a new community, a brotherhood, a group of disciples who follow Jesus that would later become known as the church. Verse 
46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember, going back to where are you from? And Philip said to him, come and see. So Nathanael starts out as a doubter. He's a skeptic. And many scholars believe that Nathanael is um, the same individual mentioned in the other three Gospels by a different name, and that is Bartholomew. And it wasn't unusual back then for a man to have two different names. But remember what I said uh, uh, about a person's identity in the East. Nathaniel couldn't believe that anything good could come out of Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth was, a, was an insignificant town of about maybe 2,000 people in Jesus' day. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. That's how insignificant it was. And um, being called a Nazarene was not a compliment in Jesus' day. And so he has formed an opinion of Jesus already from where he is from. So Philip understands he's got a problem. He, even though he has testified to Jesus, he realizes, he realizes Nathaniel needs more than just words. He needs to meet Jesus. He needs an encounter with Jesus. And so he simply says, come and see. And so I think about us as Christians. You know, sometimes we, we try to share our faith. We try to share our testimony with others. And, and it's, it's, it, you know, it looks like the, the words are just bouncing off of their forehead, like hitting a brick wall. You just can't quite get through. And, and maybe we have to consider, well, hey, why don't you come and see? Why don't you come and check it out? Why don't, why don't you come to service one day with us and uh, listen to the word and and allow God to speak to your heart through the worship and come and see. I, th I think it's powerful. I think that's our task. We are to testify to who Jesus is and invite people to come and see for themselves. And that's exactly what Nathaniel does. In verse 47, it says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So Nathaniel decides, all right, I'll come and see. I'll come and check out Jesus. But boy, he was in for a shock. Jesus saw him coming, but before he ever saw him with his eyes coming, he knew him, and he knew what was in his heart, just as Jesus knows what's in everyone's heart. And Jesus knew that Nathaniel was a man of integrity, that he worshiped God faithfully and without hypocrisy, unlike many of the religious leaders of his day. Verse 48, Nathanael says to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, my great one, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Wow. You know, Nathan was surprised that Jesus knew him without ever meeting him, but he was stunned to hear Jesus 
answer and say, hey, before you and Philip talked, I saw you under the fig tree. And he was blown away by that. He was blown away by Jesus' omniscience. That he was able to do that. And he became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And how do we know he was convinced that he was a Messiah? Because those two terms that he uses, the Son of God and the King of Israel, those are messianic terms found in the Old Testament. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 50. Jesus says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Some of your translations might say, you will see greater things than this. Meaning that Nathaniel will see even greater proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. Like what? Well, chapter 2, he'll see his first miracle. The disciples will see their first miracle. So they will see multiple miracles. But that's not what Jesus is referring to. In verse 51, it says, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word you in verse 51 is plural. Prior to that, it was singular. So Jesus is not, no longer talking just to Nathaniel when he says this. He is saying to everyone present that you all will see the heaven opened and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. And then Jesus alludes to Genesis chapter 28 where Jacob has this dream of a ladder that stretched from heaven to earth. And at the top of the ladder is God. And the angels of God are ascending and descending up and down the ladder. And in Genesis chapter 28 verse 16, this is what Jacob says. It says, well, it says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said... Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit, this is a difficult verse to understand. Um, it's, it's, it, it, it really has posed a lot of questions to me and, 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 and specifically on how this is being fulfilled. So Jesus says that this is what you're going to see. This is what you're going to witness. So the question is, when was it fulfilled? Was it fulfilled? If it wasn't, how will it be fulfilled? Well, some have suggested that, that John is, or Jesus is referring to a future event that wasn't recorded for us that we don't have a record of its fulfillment. Others suggest that it may have been fulfilled at Jesus' ascension. I mean, we know there were, there were at least a couple of angels there um, at his ascension. It's reasonable to assume the, the angels were there as Jesus was ascending to the Father. But I think that both of those interpretations, if you would, I think miss the point here. 
Because in saying that the angels of God are ascending and descending on him, he is saying he's the ladder. He is the gate. He is the door to heaven. He is the only way to the Father. So I I tend to believe that he's referring to the day when they realize, when they see for themselves that the cross that Jesus hung on was the bridge from heaven to earth. It was the ladder that allowed men and women to enter heaven. We're told that the veil of the temple was torn in two. And suddenly we have access to the Father through the cross of Christ, through his death, and through his resurrection. But what then of the angels who are ascending and descending on Jesus? Well, if that's the case, then they're not really ministering to him so much as they are ministering to us through Jesus. I like what John Calvin said about it in his commentary on John. He said this, In short, this passage teaches us that though the whole human race was banished from the kingdom of God, the gate of heaven is now open to us so that we are fellow citizens of the saints and companions of the angels And that they, having been appointed to be guardians of our salvation, descend from the blessed rest of the heavenly glory to relieve our distresses. Again, it's a difficult verse to understand. Um, If any of you have a a really good understanding of this, I'd love to, to hear from you. But as I close this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to something that I think is very important, and that's the various titles that were ascribed to Jesus in our text. And I'm just going to review them for you. The Lamb of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel. But there's one more title that shows up at the end of the chapter. Do you see it? The Son of Man. This title is used more than 80 times, and it's always by Jesus in reference to himself. He refers to himself over 80 times that he is the son of man. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which speaks of the Messiah, and it reads... In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite description of himself. And you have to ask why. 
think it is because that title emphasizes his humanity and his humility. I think it also serves as a constant reminder of what his mission was. And that was to seek and to save that which was lost, to ultimately give his life for us. God took on flesh so that he became the perfect man so that he could become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Do you know the Son of Man? Really? Truly? Maybe you're here this morning or watching online and, and you say, I don't know if I do. I, I don't think so. Not in the way that you talk about, Paul. Maybe you feel like um, you're too messed up. You're too far gone for Jesus to have anything to do with you and nothing could be further from the truth. It is so clear from our text that Jesus has the power to change lives. Look at what he did with Andrew and Simon and Philip and Nathaniel. Look what he has been doing for 2,000 years. Jesus can change your life. He can change even the life of a skeptic like Nathaniel. So if that's you, uh, I would simply say that... Um, if you, if you haven't met Jesus yet, come and see. Come and see. This is where the Christian life begins, but it's not where it ends. Discipleship involves following Jesus, abiding in him, and telling others about him. And those who follow Jesus cannot help but tell other people about him. Andrew and most likely John, came to follow Jesus through the endorsement of John the Baptist, John B. Peter and later James came to Christ through the witness of their brothers. Nathaniel came to Jesus through the testimony and invitation of Philip. This is the power of personal testimony. Now listen, none of us are famous, right? None of us are celebrities, None of us sell pillows or perfume on TV. But we have a story to tell. We have a true story. We have something worth telling others about. And, and, I, and I would simply say that if you know Jesus, then get to it. Because that's what we're called to do. To testify to who Jesus is and what he has done for you. So next week... When we go to two services, remember, there'll be a lot of room for you to invite friends, neighbors, family members, people who need to hear the gospel to come to service. And if you come up against a dead end with them, words aren't working, just say, come and see. Love to have you join us for worship. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for our time together this morning and for your word. Thank you, Lord God, that... Um, it's not rocket science. We simply allow you to change our lives and to so captivate us that we can't help but go to others 
tell them of you and what you have done in our lives and then invite them to follow you too. So Lord God, as we um, enter into the rest of this year, knowing that there'll be seats aplenty for folks, Lord, I pray that you would move upon our hearts that we would become an inviting church, a church that is excited to share what you have done in our lives in the hopes that you will do the same in the lives of others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.